0: Hello, Alex Zane here. Thank you for choosing to listen to Just The Facts. And while you can still enjoy these episodes forever, you might want to check out our brand new show, A Trip to the Movies, where each week a different famous film fan curates their perfect night out at the cinema, picking what snacks they'd eat, where they'd sit, who they'd go with, and of course, what movies they'd screen. If you love cinema as much as we do, search A Trip To The Movies with Alex Zane or head to our socials at TripToMoviesPod. That's at TripToMoviesPod to find out more. Uh you
1: The uh-huh
0: Hello and welcome to Just The Facts with me, Alex Zane, the podcast that takes a journey through the cinematic CV of a different guest every week to uncover some fascinating facts about their career. And thank you for being here for our thrill-filled 13th episode. Very quickly, if you haven't done so already... Please, right now, hit the subscribe button on Apple, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts to get every single brand new episode delivered right to your device every Tuesday morning forever, forevermore. So as well as that, if you could take the time, if it allows you, and whatever podcast platform you use, to give us a little rating and a review. That is hugely appreciated too. For example, if you're on Apple Podcasts right now, you you could think, I'm hearing this and I'll do it later. Don't do it later. Do it now. Just write us a little review. A nice one, preferably, if you enjoy the show. And that would be amazing and really useful for us. So thank you for that in advance. Don't forget, uh, you can get all the latest news on our guests and updates about the show and what we're doing on our Twitter and Instagram, where we are at JTF Pod. And if you prefer to watch your interviews rather than just listen to them or do both, then you can do that on our YouTube channel. Subscribe to Just The Facts with Alex Zane on YouTube. And the Friday after the pod comes out, you can watch the interview in full. Right then, my guest this week a phenomenal actor who has season two of his very funny and surprisingly touching comedy series The Excellent Code 404 coming out in just over a week on Sky in which he stars alongside the brilliant Stephen Graham and Anna Maxwell Martin and which I believe you can watch in the classic fashion an episode each week for six weeks or if it so pleases you, smash through the whole lot in one night just binge it because all the episodes are available on Sky on September the 1st. So we talked a lot about that. We talked about him being nominated for a BAFTA. Anyone who saw season three of Line of Duty will know exactly what I'm talking about. He's incredible in it. He's not in it a lot, but boy, is he good. Got a BAFTA nomination for that. We talked about working on that. We talked about him having a cameo in Rogue One. We talked about him hanging off the awning of the old Vic recently for a photo shoot. He is, in my opinion, one of our finest actors. It was a pleasure to have him on the show. So please welcome to Just the Facts the bloody lovely Danny Mays. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. You met Simon, didn't you? That's that's the last time we met. I did. We were over in uh, Highgate Woods,
2: were we not? That's...
0: That's right yeah it was um, I was trying to work it out because obviously um we're going to talk about what you mentioned that day code 404 in a second but yeah we were in yeah. Highgate Woods and you were with Missy it's Missy Missy right? my
2: toy Maltese who's currently asleep right next to me on the sofa. if she wakes up and barks at the postman that's who it is
0: All right that is good because um, Simon. My um, whippet is uh, Mm. everyone's left. So it's just it's just me and thee in the house. But he's due. He's due his walk. So he's whining in the background. So apologies in advance if that happens. Okay, he's um...
2: apologies. Yeah, we were really toying, Alex, to getting a whippet. That was I love whippets. And somehow I got overruled by my wife and my daughter. So the women in the house and we ended up getting a toy Maltese.
0: But there you go. But you're in love with Missy now, obviously. We
2: are in love with Missy. Yeah, we wouldn't be. She's like her <laughs> little eyes are perking up, going, "Oh, you're actually <laughs> talking about me." Um, yeah, God, you spend like you know a day with your new dog and you just fall in love with them, don't you? So it's um, so yeah, it
0: works. It's crazy. Although when I met you, because um, it was we were in lockdown, weren't we? We were still in. We, we were in lockdown. We were in lockdown. Yeah. So I, I mean, it was like, what was it? Lockdown three two i can't remember but <laughs> yeah. i had that i had that 2.0 yeah. yeah it was i got to the point where it stopped being a novelty at that point because i like it was great at the start walking around highgate woods like walking the dogs and then yeah sort of as it went on i was just like ah this is I know. now now i'm starting to live in a constant state of anxiety which is uh which in this profession isn't uncommon anyway <laughs> Like, you took to it like a duck to water. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, but uh, but no, it was lovely to see you in the woods. It's always nice. I'm not very, you know, that thing. I'm not very good, like because most of the time I prepare to interview people, and then when you meet someone by chance, it's like, oh bloody hell, hello, how are you? (laughs) So what do we do now? (laughs) Yeah, do I ask you a series of questions about your career? So uh, (laughs) yeah. So where did you train? Uh, Who are you (laughs) close with? Um, yeah, but you've just got back from holiday, haven't you? I mean, uh, it, 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 is it stalking? I mean, for an interviewer, Instagram is just a blessing because I, I know what you've been up to now. Yeah, the,
2: I uh, we just come back from Devon. I did do quite a lot of holiday posting, didn't I, on Instagram. I don't know what that is. It's I think that possibly is a consequence of lockdown and all of that. I don't know, just to... I mean, we we go to Solcombe every year. We went... Uh, the year before last as well. And we just love it down there. Um, And I just think, um, you know, it's great for the kids. There's so many activities. And also I've kind of got really friendly with a lot of the um, businesses down there, like the guy that does the fishing trips and the paddle boarding guy, Marcus. So I always, I don't know, I love them so much and and they're lovely people. So I always like to give them a shout out on Instagram and give them a big up, you know?
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I saw, I saw the fishing trip as well. Um, big fish, big ling. Oh my god! My son Milo caught a fifteen-pound.
2: It's called a common ling. I mean, I'm not big really on my fishing, and this thing came out of the sea, and I was like, <laughs> "What the hell?" Is that? <laughs> and he's like, "It's a ling." I said, "Oh my god! Never seen anything like it." So, um, yeah, but actually, my son's been offered a fishing job next year for two months down there with, with, um, uh, squirrel, the fisherman to be the assistant on the boat. So it looks like I'll be going back down there again. I'm wow. like, I want to go to my beef. I don't want to keep <laughs> going to Devon. You know what I mean? And
0: <laughs> um, that's, and you've got your sea legs then, so you don't get seasick. I mean, cause I, I've, I've, I've basically, I've only been sea fishing on a boat once off Newquay about 2007. And the only fish that I saw uh, came out of my mouth. Uh, back into the sea, which is that <laughs> it's a weird thing to do anyway. So I'm about to go fishing, so I'll probably eat fish and chips, and then yeah. Oh, do you know was... what, Alex? It doesn't
2: affect me. I've actually shot twice on like um I remember doing a, a Treasure Island for Sky. Uh, Eddie Izzard was um, Long John yeah, Silver. I remember that, yeah. And it was like, um, we were out filming it in Dublin and uh, we were on the big ship and it was like, they said, listen, some of you, if if you're prone to getting seasickness, we can give you these tablets. And um, some actors took them, some (laughs) actors didn't, but it really affected uh, people, uh, each individual at different times. So you would be completely spaced out doing a a scene with someone and they'd just feel like completely woozy. Hmm. And the other instance was, when we made Fisherman's Friends. And um, that was a particularly rocky sea. And I will never ever forget the focus puller on that, on that job. You know, when someone says, he, he literally, you know, when someone says, you've turned green, I now know what that means. I've, I've seen that close up. And I don't know whether it was because that was his job and he had to, you know, make sure it was in focus and he was looking at the horizon or whatever it was. But all of a sudden he just, he just turned and the whole colour drained from his face and he spewed and the wind caught it and it just flew straight back in his face. I was like, oh man, let's get off this boat as quickly as possible.
0: Yeah, uh, I appreciate his uh, predicament. That was, that was me. And it, was, it just came at the worst time as well. So we were sharing the boat with these proper proper fishermen like who yeah. they'd been out already in the morning and they'd come back to pick us up and I was at the height of my like wanky indie phase where I was in skinny jeans best top a trilby and I got on this <laughs> boat and they they sort of looked at me and then and I was like I'm gonna I can pull this off you just wait boys and then within 10 minutes I'm, I'm spewing my guts up over the side and they were just looking at me it was like they were proper like quints. Types like those are city <laughs> hands boy, been <laughs> counting money all your life. Yeah, so, uh, scars,
2: tattoos everywhere. Yeah, the works.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll never put on a life jacket again. <laughs> that shit. Um, so yeah, it is uh when this goes out, one week until season two of code four oh four comes out on sky, um, which is uh, exciting uh for me, yeah. I'm assuming for you.
2: Yeah, we're all buzzing about it. I mean, Alex, I've only saw the whole completed six episodes last weekend. We had a an amazing cast and crew. That was the other thing. When the first series came out, that was in lockdown. And we none of us have really been able to get into a room and celebrate the success of the first series. Mm. So we had a great cast and crew on Saturday. And it's just... I mean I'm, I'm calling it an upgrade you know what I mean it, it feels a lot more confident it's bigger it's bolder all those things that you want a second series to be but the fact that we did shoot this in lockdown Code 404 season two was one of the first shows to come back mm-hmm. so um you know I mean I hadn't worked for seven months it was it was quite a rarity for me actually because I'm always quite busy. So wow. I, how, was, I remember- how was
0: that then, like going from, because you are really busy and it just seems to be yeah. getting busier and busier, but to go from literally that busy, because that's how I felt, like I was saying, that sort of, it was, a, it was a real shock to the system and it went from, this is nice, to then this is not so nice. But I did enjoy it at the start, that rarity of like having... not yeah.
2: Well, I, I, I was... Um, Milo, what was he then, 14 and Dixie must have been seven. So... It was homeschooling, all that stuff. And then I had this tragic accident with my wife where she broke literally broke her leg. Oh, uh, the sun the Sunday before the schools uh, were shut down. She had a freak accident on a dog walk and slipped and broke her leg. So my wife was in bed. Uh Dixie, our daughter was homeschooling. And our son Milo was doing his mock exams. In, in the. I mean, I felt like Michael Keaton in Mr Mum. I was just, I didn't know what was <laughs> going on. So I didn't really have time to think, Going, oh my God, where's my next job coming from? I was just taking each day as it comes. But um, yeah, so 404 was the first back. And I remember Stephen Graham, who co-leading it with me, who plays Roy Carver. He phones me and says, man, I just like... It feels like the first job we've ever done. You know, like, how do we do? He was quite, we were both quite nervous. Um, but you get into the swing of it, but it was a kind of different playing field that first couple of weeks because it was PCR tests and social distancing and and all that kind of, um, every all of the crew wearing masks. So, but the biggest compliment I can give the second series is that you know n- you don't see any of that on screen it's that was the biggest concern is that somehow we were going to cut corners shooting in a pandemic and um nothing could be further from the truth so um it's great it's it's a lot it's it's a sort of darker story it's still laugh out loud funny but it seems to be a lot more emotional actually particularly the last 3 where it goes so i love i love code 404 because there's so many different elements to it and i think um fans of the first series are going to have a, have an absolute ball with it second time round.
0: It's interesting you talk about it being shot in COVID because obviously it's it's a comedy series. I mean, it, 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 I, I call it a comedy and you touched on it there and we, we can talk about that because it does do that amazing thing of manage to balance comedy with drama and actual emotional stakes and then yes. it, it looks like a freaking cool crime series. The way it's shot is beautiful. Is. Yes, so, yes. So, it's got all those things, but ultimately is a comedy. And I've always imagined, like, on the set of a comedy, the atmosphere on set is kind of conducive to how good the series is. Now, I might be wrong, but I imagine that you want to have fun. You want to, you know, the crew to be having fun and you want that kind of atmosphere of enjoyment. And I just wonder whether that was kind of a difficult thing to achieve when everyone's like, okay, awesome. It was because, you know,
2: you know what it's like when you're shooting a show and, and everyone's wearing masks, that whole thing of you not seeing their mouths, or you know what I mean? Seeing people smile and the sense of communication through lip reading or actually looking at a person's mouth move is integral, you know what I mean? So it was it was kind of strange, it probably, but it, it, I guess it was down to me and Stephen and all the other actors to sort of, you know, galvanize everyone and keep that energy up because, I mean, Code 404 is a really fun show to watch, but it's a kind of re- to act. It is relentless, relentless six weeks work because we're kind of pretty much in every scene, and we always get halfway through it and we go bloody. Oh, this is this is a killer, isn't it? But um, <laughs> it's uh, this is I a comedy imagine- it's meant to be easier. I imagine yeah. for
0: you as well, because it is, it's a, it's a big performance, uh, you know, your character, yeah. because there's a lot of physicality involved, be, be, because for anyone who hasn't seen the series, uh, you are, uh, a cybernetic organ, part human, 90% human, 10% cybernetic organism, uh, brought That's back. That's a good description, today. Alex, yeah. <laughs> Thanks very much. I like my sci-fi, uh, mm. so, um, I just, it's. I imagine it must be, I I, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I guess one of the reasons you wanted to play uh, the role is because it's a real carte blanche. It's like, you know, you can do anything with that because no one can ever go, oh, no, 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 Danny. That's not, that is not how you play a resurrected cop who's now part (laughs) robot. That's just not it. Exactly.
2: You can kind of have, it's a a gift, Alex, really. I mean, as soon as I... uh read the like we shot a pilot and I mean look I got a call from my agent and she was like um they want to attach you to this comedy and um he gets killed in the first episode and I was like <laughs> hold on a minute I think we've I think we've ticked that box haven't we and she went no 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 he comes back part man part AI and I was like wow that sounds completely mad and I've read it but it's it's Daniel Peake our writer he's an extraordinary talent and it was kind of gag after gag on each page. And I always remember my wife was in the kitchen and I was laughing out loud and she was like, so you're gonna do it then? And I was like, without a doubt, I had that guttural reaction to it. And um, it's just a joy to play because like you say, there are, it is physical, Um, there's emotion in it, uh, it's slapstick. I mean, I always describe it as like a cross between Robocop and some mothers do have them. Do you know what I mean? It's sort of that. It's sort of a blend of those two shows, oh. but I love, I love the poignancy we get in it. I love the drama. And I, you know, we're blessed to have amazing actors in it. Like the likes of Stephen Graham and Anna Maxwell, Martin, Rosie mm. Cavaliero, who are equally as comfortable in comedy as they are in, in serious drama. And I think that's, to Code 404's credit and its strength, you know, and it's a joy to play in, in both those tones with it.
0: Yeah. And like I said, it looked cool. Do you know, it's weird. I was, um, it reminds me, and completely by chance, I'd love this to be a, a wonderful segue, uh, but it's not completely by chance. One of the movies that I think has made London look as cool as Code 404 does um, is a film that that you were actually in, which I was on the set of um, Welcome to the Punch, Aaron Creevy's oh. film. And yes, Iran. Yeah, I've never seen London look as cool as it does in that movie. I mean, obviously you were in Shifty before that um, that you yes. directed, but that's a, a cool looking movie.
2: Yeah, uh, Rani is an amazing talent because um, we made that independent film Shifty, which really punched above its weight. And the great thing about Iran Crevi as a filmmaker is that he he never he didn't want his next movie to be a carbon copy of what had been before. Like he wants to jump around in different. Genres and types of films, and he was always really uh, taken with you know Japanese action films and John Woo and all that sort of stuff. So I think the way that they shot that film, it was London had never been seen like that on screen before. And in actual fact, there are yeah, absolute uh, comparisons to Code 404. Mm. That I mean, I know that Al Campbell, our director of Code 404, goes up in the helicopter at the end of the shoot and as a day just sort of shooting the landscape and it's brilliant because the whole thing just opens up and yeah. we've got an amazing set piece and stunt sequence at the end of the series uh, in Docklands with the helicopter and everything. So, I mean, that was another thing to try and be, as I said, bigger and bolder with all of the stunts. Yeah. But I, I love uh, Welcome to the Punch. I think it's a really underrated movie actually it is
0: underrated and it's a shame it didn't do better because uh because i really enjoyed it and i I like being on the set of that movie as well so yeah no it was good so you mentioned um uh, some others do have and and comedy and i will say just uh you know we're sitting here talking about code 404 and there is a real hunger for this second season we're not just talking about it in um, in a sort of abstract fashion because like the first season was huge for sky i think it's like one of the most one of the most binged series or the quickest binge series ever for a sky original comedy or some crazy stat like that yeah like
2: I, it was like their most watched show in 8 years or something yeah. like that i mean um i mean i tweeted that out i was like yeah go on blow your own trumpet
1: <laughs> you know <laughs> you got it's it.
2: great it's yeah you go you know it's it's um i mean my phone didn't stop pinging when the first series came out you know so it was uh it's, it's got a core fan base now. And I'm, I'm just excited to get that second season out and show them what we've got.
0: And it's, it's great watching um, you and Stephen on screen together. Um, I really, I really enjoy watching the, the double act that you've got going. And you mentioned this, and he was quite honest in an interview. Um, he, he said that, you know, as you started filming the first season, uh, this is he did feel a little bit like, I'm not sure, Danny. I'm not sure if I've, I've, got, I've got my head in this yet. I don't know if I'm playing this right.
2: Yeah, he, he did say that to me and I it was sort of somewhat taken aback because, I mean, I think the thing about Major and Carver is they are literally just a classic comedic double act, you know, straight man, funny man. And I think that's, you know, through generations of comedy, isn't it? Like that sort of uh, gimmick has sort of the rewards of that have been tenfold, you know. So, and I just said to him, you know, just do what you do i think just just play it straight and particularly with the second season he really i think without Stephen in it because he's so truthful he's so grounded and, and and believable in in what he does that um it does he is without question the emotional heartbeat of it you know and and again we kind of investigate that whole love triangle thing that was going on in the first season so all of that's still in there all that sort of subtext of betrayal and all that um jealousy that they've got of one another so but i i I just said steve just 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 be you play it play it down just play it truthfully and then i'll just jump around and (laughs) act like a (laughs) loon and somehow hopefully it works
0: and it's not it's not your first sitcom rodeo together either and i i remember this clearly because i was actually working uh mtv in 2004 i was uh, a, a ah. DJ, as we used to be called and there was a there was a big big it was a big thing that mtv had made this show because i i think and i might be incorrect but i think it was the first sitcom mtv had ever done yeah and and that was uh the johnny vaughn written top buzzer which was you and Steven, and i remember that being on mtv
2: yeah 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 wow that, i mean god that's uh going back uh I don't know what 16, 17 years or 17 something years. like that. Yeah. Um, yeah, written by Johnny Vaughan, uh, the brilliant Ed Allen. Mm. It was just an absolute that was the first time I met Steve. So we we got on like an absolute house on fire. And that was the job that I met my wife on, uh, Lou. And Steve played Silla Black. He's he's our Silla Black. He was <laughs> a he was a complete matchmaker because I was <laughs> frightened about asking her out, and he sort of did it for me. And anyway the uh, 2.4 children, another toy Maltese dog later, here we are. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's all his fault. Um, but um, it was just a crazy time, that Top Buzzer. It was, um, I mean, we used to shoot, you know, 10 pages a day. We were down there in Three Mill Studios, and every day you'd be like, it was like a shooting a short film when you got the sides. I'm like, how on earth are we going to get through this? But the brilliant James Lance and... and Perry Benson and all these brilliant actors and and um, But it's got a real cult following that, hasn't it? Oh, it I does, still, yeah. I still get little stoners coming up to me now and again going, are you going to do a second series? Top passer? I was like, oh, 17 years ago, I don't think so. If they were going to do it, it would have been made already.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you smoke that much weed. I think time and yeah. your perception of time changes, it probably feels like yesterday to them. It just finished last night, man. I was just watching it last <laughs> yeah. night. Surely the second series is due any day now.
2: <laughs> yeah, no, we've all moved on. Yeah,
0: and and your first ever credit, just like, I feel like I'm, I'm going really back in time now, but it's only because it's a show that I was uh, I was a huge fan of at the time. Your first screen credit is in the Stuart Lee Richard Herring show, Fist of Fun. Oh
2: wow! Yes, yeah. I was I was a uh, uh, in that classroom scene, wasn't I? That's yeah, right. yeah. The, the
0: teacher I scene. Yeah,
2: Kelly Brooke was in that as well. I mean, I was at stage school then. I was at Italia Conti, and it was one of those random castings that you just got and um but wow what amazing comedians to start up, off with you know it's, it's not a bad first credit is it
0: not a bad first credit at all but you would have been about 17 then and like you just said you've been studying acting for a while so at what at what point did you realize that you wanted to act and actually pursue this career like properly like that was what you wanted to do
2: I guess it must've been around that time when I was about, you know, 15, 16, where I was, I mean, I was always performing. I was always jumping around doing impressions and doing Michael Jackson routines. And that's the thing that led me to stage school. But then when I got to about 15, 16, you kind of, you're maturing and then you, you start looking, I mean, it was all those independent American movies and the actors like the De Niro's and the Pacino's and, Gene Hackman, all those sort of, you know, incredible seventies and early eighties American movies that you just, you just, that's when I knew, you know, and it, it wasn't just actors like that; it was homegrown talent, like you know, Gary Oldman, and and um, you just, you just wanted to be seen as a serious actor, and I think that's when a shift happened in me, and I, I then went from stage go on to Rada, so I actually had a, quite a lot of training really, yeah. but they were sort of poles apart really, you know, going from a stage school to, to Rada was kind of, it was, it was, it took some adjusting to, if that makes sense. Because, you know, Rada was from the inside out, it was Stanislavski, it was all sort of internalizing a character, whereas Atelier Conti was, uh, was all tits and teeth. <laughs> 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 um, with all due respect to Conti's, but, um it wasn't where I was at anymore. So um I wanted to get all serious on it. Yeah.
0: So there wasn't like there wasn't one moment, one one film, seeing one actor, seeing someone on stage. There was there was never a single defining thing that made you go, Holy shit, that that's well, it. I
2: I was always a keen artist. I, I'd say what I used to do, like when I was doing my GCSE arts, I used to paint on the dining room table at home. And I ne- I always remember um It was on channel four, they had a retrospective of De Niro's films. I never forget it. And it was like, every time it went to the commercial break, there was this bronze bust of his head. (laughs) And I I, I would sort of paint and and I would always have the television on. And it was like every Sunday night, quite late at 10 o'clock or whatever it was. And they started every week, there was a new De Niro film. And, um, I must have just stopped painting and then I was just started watching it. Because like one week it was Raging Bull, then it was Taxi Driver, and then it was King of Comedy. And you were like, "And I," it sort of kind of shook me to my core that this one guy was week after week performing these diverse and completely extraordinary characters. Mm. And so that whole mystique of, you know, being versatile, stretching yourself and using a different part of yourself to play a character is um, that kind of blew my mind. So it was pretty much that the work of of De Niro that really, really kind of inspired me, I'd say.
0: Well, it's interesting because I think, I think, you know, the the same could be said of, of you in terms of the kind of roles that you pick and, and the way that you sort of disappear into the characters and how diverse uh, they are. I mean, you sort of look at uh, prior to lockdown. I mean, we talked about how busy you were, but you look at how different they are. There's Code Four Hundred Four. There's Temple. There's uh, White Lines on Netflix. Good Omens. Yeah. Films like Fisherman's Friends. And that's a that's a very eclectic mix of characters and tones of series. Yeah, and
2: it's not it's not really been a conscious choice, really. I mean, I've never really been one of those actors that has had a sort of you know game plan as such I always I always had that sense of wiping the slate clean with every new job and that that age-old age sort of adage of you're only as good as your last job I kind of really believe in that but it's it's um maybe may, I did have a lot of training like I said so I did as much as I was sort of ridiculing stage school maybe that sort of training of 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 before, you know musical theatre and things like that mixed in with a sort of classical training from RADA I felt sort of comfortable in both those worlds and I think um I mean look I guess I equally love doing comedy as much as the serious stuff um but for for your own sense of being you as a performer you want to keep mixing it up you never you never really want to um perform the same thing over and over because it, it's sort of it becomes law of diminishing values, isn't it? And it's, Mm -hmm. um, or a sort of variation on a theme. And I think, um, you know, I mean, I do see actors that sort of do that and and I've worked with them and you think, come on, there's more in the locker than that. You know, (laughs) you've got to, you've got to find those roles that really frighten you, that really go. I mean, I remember doing a, a, it was repeated this week, this single drama against the law. For BBC Two, um which was the biopic of Peter Wildblood a journalist in the 50s that got in prison for being uh homo- homosexual and it was like never in a million years would I be imagined that I would be off a role like that and I I very nearly turned it down because of the intimacy of the scenes I didn't know if I was up to that and um so it was petrifying in many regards but my God, it was probably the most rewarding, exhilarating experience I've ever been involved in. And I'm so pleased. I felt the fear and, and did it because I sort of surprised myself. And I think that's really where you want to be. Um, it's very difficult when you leave drama school or you first get in the industry, you've got your head above the parapet and you just want to get your foot in the door. I completely get that. But the longer you stay in the game and the more people you work with and the relationships that you forge, it's then that you can really start to stretch yourself and. People would say, man, well, let's try this, you know, or let's go in this different direction. And that's the sweet spot. That's where you really want to get, and you have to embrace that and um, try something else.
0: Well, I don't know if this next role that I want to talk to you about scared you. Uh, It certainly uh, falls more on the serious side, Um, and it'd be interesting if it scared you when you read it, but um, uh, your performance in season three of Line of Duty, um, uh, that's... uh, it's a hell of a performance, uh, a hell of a, 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 an opening episode. Um, sadly, uh, your only episode <laughs> in, the, yeah. in, the, in the series. And when you got that script, I mean, you know, I don't want to jump the gun, but obviously you got the BAFTA nomination uh, for that performance. Yeah. So this isn't just me uh, saying how great it is. This is bloody BAFTA. But did you read that on the page and go, this is special and potentially yeah, we- scary?
2: Uh, I knew it was, I knew it was special. I knew, um, I mean, I was a huge fan of the first two series. So I was, so I was always already really sort of tempted by it. And then, um, I loved the show and you go, right. They want to audition you for the, for the new lead. And you're like, okay, this, this already feels big. But then I, then I read, then I read the first ep and it was, I kind of get into, I mean, from the off, it was just, next level you know I mean he's an armed response officer and he guns down a suspect within the first couple of pages and yeah. you're like whoa that's a you don't see that every day uh, and then before you know it you're into this huge interrogation scene which was pretty much like <clears throat> 15 pages long and he could speak chapter and verse couldn't he about how a bullet flies through the air and you were like it's like it was sort of it was sort of Shakespearean in the speeches that he was coming out with it was sort of in terms of the, the dialogue learn, it was kind of extraordinary and very challenging and, and difficult and all those things but um but by the end of it, this kind of on the surface of things, this psychopath who guns people down and does terrible things, you reveal that he's suffering from all uh, this child abuse and trauma and and you suddenly go, "Wow, that is an absolute box of tricks. Just wait to be open." Uh, and then the rug's pulled right at the very end as well. So in terms of like, I remember going into the audition and there was the director there and Jed Mercurio and I, and they. The first thing I said was like, "Does he make it? Like, what, 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 what's going on here?" And they went, "Listen, sadly, this is the, the 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 we're going to pull the rug and kill off the new lead." And I was like, "Wow!" So, but um. The remit for the audition, Alex, was to learn as much as you could of of that interrogation scene and I, I I had about a week with it, and i I pretty much learned the whole thing. Do you know what i mean i that's how, that's how much I really wanted it not if not the whole thing, then a good sort of ten pages of it. I was like, "You need to get this." It was one of those um without sounding too arrogant or anything like that. it was one of those opportunities where you go uh it was one of those meetings where you just say leave it all in the room <laughs> like do you know what i mean like yeah don't, i do don't, whatever you do danny don't leave this room now and and regret that you didn't try that or you didn't go for it give give it double barrels mm. and i think i i i was so gun ho about getting that job that i I wasn't going to take no for an answer and luckily it came my way um and i know that they, they saw some great actors for it as well but it was um it's always the most, it actually, the, the most amazing part of my job is when you do the feeling you get when you really want a casting and you really want a role and it lands in your lap and you get it. That's a, that, that that sort of feeling of achievement is priceless, you know. Mm. And you have to remember that and then you have to sort of take that on board and go, shit, I've got to now actually go on and do it. But <laughs> I think when, when you have that desire to play something, it kind of fuels the whole, the duration of the shoot. Um, and I'm just, I'm, I'm blown away by Line of Duty now. It kind of series three did so well and it went on to BBC One. Is now this huge, huge show for the BBC And I'm I'm just very honoured and proud to be part of it all. You know, it it was I have to say it was an intense two week shoot, but adored every second with Martin and Adrian and Vicky and uh, Jed Mercurio is a genius. You know, he's Mm. that show that he's uh, created is um, stellar. You know what I mean? It's it's meticulously researched and he knows the material inside and out. And I'm just so I'm thrilled for him. Really, he's a lovely guy.
0: And it's, it, I mean, you know, that interrogation scene, like on the page, it's a man reciting the 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 codes of the the police force, and yet, yeah. you know, to actually watch it, it says so much about the character. That's that's for me. That's it, that's that's what I took from it. Like what, understanding, like the, the writing. Uh, which on the page is one thing, and then combined with your performance, it's it's just like, it's such a telling scene. Like, you learn so much um, about yeah. your character without him saying fucking anything about yeah. who he is.
2: There's a There's a lovely moment towards the very end where, I mean, it's an interrogation, isn't it? So they're trying to chink at his armour, and he's kind of like this... He's a bit John Major, and he? he's a bit ro- <laughs> robotic. He's not, he's not crumbling, anyways. And it's when they question his sexuality that that it's suddenly you, there's a shift, mm. and you go, wow. And I remember reading that, thinking, wow, that's such that's just brilliant writing. It's such a huge reveal, and it's always in, in those moments of any character you play, if you can just you know reveal the inner life of a, of a character, it's it's always the most. Um, Interesting. Um, I think that was what was so great about Danny Waldron is he was a conundrum. You couldn't really ever work him out. Um, there was always that sort of mystique to him, which was sort of enticing to watch.
0: And they do absolutely like said- It
2: was a it was a massive turning. It was a huge turning point, I think, in my career. You know what I mean? It, it sort of, as you mentioned, there was a Bath nomination, and it and it just did me the, all the world of good to 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 be part of it. Yeah.
0: Well, I was going to say, do you feel like because the, the you know there was the BAFTA nomination, there was the fact the series did so well, there were the, the plaudits for your performance um, in that episode. Did it, did you feel a real sea change in terms of the way, the kind of I guess the, you know to actually qualify the kind of roles that were coming through, or the scale of the roles, or a change in in the kind of phone calls that were coming in?
2: Uh, I did, I did feel that. I did feel. I think it's a lot of the time you know there's so many great actors out there and but you know you're always playing around with that idea of is someone bums on seats are they commercially mm-hmm. valuable or not do you know what i mean and that's without that's a horrible way of looking at it but from a business point of view you know we we, you, we see it in films isn't it it takes a certain actor to green light a project and that that's just the reality of the business and i think Certainly, after Line of Duty, um, even though I was killed after one episode, <laughs> it was clear that you know I had the capacity to sort of lead a show, and I think because um, um, that is a huge, it is a huge responsibility when you're the lead of a show because um, it does start at the top. How you dictate yourself, how you you know behave on set, how you carry yourself, how much work you put in. I think all of that filters down to the actors beneath you, you know? And I think I, by no stretch of the imagination, am am I a diva or anything like that? I just don't think there's any place in the industry for things like that. It's a, it's always about the graft, you know, it's about, Mm. it's about the work and enjoying the work and leaving it in the room. I think that's the ethos of how I go about
0: things. I guess it must being offered leads and, uh, and like you say, it's sort of a lot of it is um, on 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 you as the the lead in a series. I imagine the pressure increases though because, like you say, it's bums on seats. It's how many people are going to watch the series, and if you're yeah. on, if you're looking at something and going, "All right, I'm the lead in this. I've been off the lead in this." You're also then for the first time really having to consider the quality of the series, the writing, the, the what it is, and where the people are actually going to watch it because you know they will go. You know, Danny May's new series hasn't done so well in the ratings as opposed to if you yeah. were a, a supporting player in it, it would be someone else or it would be the series. It wouldn't come back to you. So you must have to be a, a little more uh, delicate with what you actually say yes to.
2: I, th- I think so. I think um, I guess the next step and lots of contemporaries of mine are starting to form their own um production companies so maybe maybe that pressure's taken off of them and i will hold on i am the boss so it's like <laughs> um, what's the issue but um maybe that's the next i mean i've been talking you know to people about trying to um create your own work and i mean you know code 404 was a prime example of them coming to me and then wanting to attach me to get the green light and to get the thing off the ground and. And that was incredibly flattering, but it's about, you know, now I think trying to think about the characters I really want to play and, and talking to the right people and, and creating your own work, you know, it's um, that, that's sort of really interesting. To me. But, but, but the thing of, the thing of, um, you know, you getting the green light on something, it, it's always, I mean, I recently did, um, I love doing it. The, the Dennis Nielsen drama for ITV and, mm. you know, I mean, you know, David Tennant was obviously the guy that greenlit that project, and rightly so, because he's absolutely phenomenal. So I think once you get, you know, once they get their name like that, then I think, you know, I knew that Lewis Arnold, the director of Carte Blanche, as to who he would pick for the, for the two other roles, and um, it was myself and the brilliant Jason Watkins. So that sort of sense of business and um, how big you are in the ratings, that never really goes away you have to just learn to to live with that I mean I still miss out on stuff Alex you know what I mean I'm still in a a weird sort of way the the more successful you get I don't know if you find this in your side of things but it's it's you know the more traction you get the higher up the ladder you go then you you're coming into contact with some serious (laughs) talent and it's like well hold on a minute and I go what do you mean I haven't got it who's got it and it's such (laughs) and such and you go Oh yeah, well yeah, they are pretty good, aren't they? <laughs> I mean, that's just that's just part of the course, you know. And I guess I've got easy, better at sort of coping with all that, you know. Mm. Rejection is the name of the game, actually. At the end of the day, isn't it? and yeah. Yeah, yeah,
0: well, yeah, and it's how you process that, and it's it's you know. It's uh, it's a very strange thing. I think you can live you live a long time in an industry, and like you'd assume that rejection has just become part of the course, and it's water off a duck's back. And you you can never separate out the personal uh, from like it, the business. You're like it, yeah. it feels like it's about me. It's about it's about something my craft. What like I, you know what, what I do, what I bring, and it's not yeah. just I've found someone better. It's because they don't like me. <laughs> exactly. I'm not selling insurance or hoovers, for example. <laughs> it's like, it's me. <laughs> what it is about me? You don't like, but you know, it is what it is. Um, and there was a, a, on this subject of sort of like uh, contemporaries and uh, other, I mean, he's a great actor, Eddie Marzan, um, who I'm a, I'm a huge fan of uh, who you've obviously yeah. worked with a, a couple of times, Red Riding, uh, The Limehouse Golem. Um and uh, he put a tweet out recently, which I thought was really interesting. Um, and it was off the back. Let's actually talk about what it was off the back of before. It was your ES uh, magazine interview, the Evening Standard <laughs> magazine. Um, that photo on that cover. And maybe, <laughs> maybe I love it the most because I saw the video that went with it. Because yeah. it, it's a nuts photo. Just for, for people who haven't seen it, what is that photo? And was it planned? Because it looks terrifyingly impromptu.
2: Um, I recently performed The Dumb Waiter at the Old Vic with um, a massive acting hero of mine, David Dulles. We had a great, short, sharp, brilliant run of The Dumb Waiter. And um, they, it just came in with my publicists and they said, Look, I've got, they want to put you on the, to celebrate the opening of theatre and all the rest of it. They want to do a, um, a, a cover story, a cover piece on the Evening Standard magazine. I said, that's amazing. I said, But they, what they really want is to shoot in the theatre itself, you know, in that beautiful auditorium there and on the main stage. And there was, they were ahming and ahhing whether they were going to allow it, and then they did. And so um, we had all the stylists and all everything and different outfits and makeup, costume, boom, main stage, auditorium, blah, blah, blah. And um, they said, what would be great? Because at the front of the building at that time, it said, because it was the old Vic back together season. And they had emblazoned on the sign at the front, back together in big red flashing lights. And it was like, great. I mean, it would be great, wouldn't it, if we could get you out on the uh, on the roof and then health and safety started going, this is terrible. We can't be doing this. Anyway. It looked pretty safe. It was fine. You know what I mean? And I was like, let's just do it. And they grabbed the ladder and went over the other side of the street. And... But I have to say, when I got actually out onto the ledge, it did look a little bit um, unsteady under the foot. So I was, uh, and they were going, put both feet on it. And I was like, there's no way I'm going to be doing that because it was ridiculously high up. Uh-huh. And I had the flashing back together sign. I was either going to get electrocuted by the sign or I was going to plummet to my death. Um, but we managed to get the shot. But w- the funny thing about it, on that day, it was when England played Germany in the Euros. Mm. And so when I was out there, all these drunk English fans like <laughs> would go, yeah, oh, look, it's Danny Dyer, it's Danny <laughs> Dyer. And I was like, oh, whatever, I'll just go with it. And we started <laughs> singing Football's Coming Home. So it was without doubt the most memorable photo shoot I've ever done. It was brilliant.
0: Uh, and and, and produced an amazing front cover, I have to say. It's 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 a it's honestly it's a really I think it's one of those photos that is very iconic. It looks great. It's celebrating the reopening of theatre, and and it looks genuinely like a health and safety nightmare. Yeah, uh, yeah it definitely it, was that. Yeah, it's got all this. Thing. I once had a photo taken. Uh, this is this sounds like a name drop. It's, it's it's not. But I was on the on the top of the IMAX um, uh, doing a, a Mission Impossible premiere, and I was doing a photo with Tom Cruise on this gantry, yeah. like that extends out over the street. And again, health and safety, were like, we don't recommend going on it. And if you do, you've got to be attached to these wires because no one's been on that gantry for about 10 years. And I'm like, all right. So I'm standing there waiting and he bounds out like Tom Cruise. And it's like, hey, hey. And the guy's like, so you need to wear this. He's like, no, I don't. And gets out on this gantry. No wire. And he's like, this is exciting, isn't it? And I'm like, yeah, but. And then he starts shaking the whole thing side to side. Because he's like, because he's a stuntman. And he's like. And, and I can, I'm, I'm standing there watching plumes of rust like explode <laughs> from these bolts that haven't had any stress put on them in ten years, and I'm standing there thinking, if this goes and and we, me and Tom Cruise, fall to our deaths tomorrow morning, no one's going to know I've died because that's that'll be it, that'll be the story. But I, it's it's health and safety are funny because just to watch the guy turn around and go, go to the photographer. I am no longer responsible for this, and walk off. You're like, where are you going? <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, come back. It's terrifying. But yeah, great photo. And but yeah. So what I was going to say about Eddie Marzan, Um. So he, the, it was a lovely tweet. He said that he called you a shining example uh, to those from a less privileged background. Um. I which is raising that point. I think has been discussed like uh, over the years about acting still being somewhat of an exclusive club um, to interacting, you know, it's not easy. It's, you know, there, you need to have a bit of money behind you, maybe contacts, networking. And it does seem like uh, certain people have it easier to access acting and make a career of it. Um, do you think that is starting to change now here in 2021? Do you think uh, people from less privileged backgrounds are being able to... Get into the career of acting and explore that easier.
2: I think that I think there has been a shift uh, over recent years. I think when I when I think about the likes of, you know, uh, Daniel Kalula or Riz Ahmed, or, or I think you know they're really breaking through. I think I mean I, I remember doing an initiative a couple of years ago for Rado, and they came to me and they said, you know, it was their goal to try and hunt out and find you know, poorer kids from lesser backgrounds. Um So I know drama schools like that have initiatives, but it's, and I think, I think maybe what Eddie was going on about is that maybe so much working class actors aren't celebrated as much as other people or, hmm. or stuff like that. And I think there, there, there's a, there is an argument to that, you know, and I think the likes of the, the Eddies and the, um, Uh, Stephen Grahams and the Johnny Harris's aren't as, I don't know if we're uh, celebrated as maybe our sort of posher contemporaries. I mean, I'm not taking away from those guys. They're, they're, they're incredible, but I think there's always room for the door to always be open and to always spread the net as far and wide as you can to find, you know, kids from poor backgrounds because um, you need that. You need, you need, the thing is you and it's not just actors it's 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 people it's writers it's the it's the producers it's the next generation of directors it's on both sides of the camera because and and there then you can really um, tell those working class stories and I think mm. if uh, you never want to get into a place where those types of films are never being made I mean I sat down when we're down in Devon um, we sat down and watched kez I showed my son that oh. cause we, We went to a falconry and he was like obsessed with kestrels. And I went, oh, my God, we've got to put Kez on. And I'd not seen it in years.
0: It's he all right? um, If I remember it rightly, that doesn't end well. Oh, my
2: God. It's the (laughs) most depressing end. Mm. I mean, you know, his elder brother kills the kestrel and that's it. And he buries it and it ends. That's the end of the movie. Yeah,
0: Um, yeah, yeah. I think I might have watched that and uh, what was it? The Ring of Bright Water, the one with Tarka the Otter in. i couldn't believe (laughs) it i think i watched kez about a week earlier and then i watched that and i'm like the fucking otter dies at the end (laughs) he gets killed by some his love that he loves this otter and the dogs kill it i'm like what is it with british movies give where's the goonies give me the goonies and put the goonies but the
2: but the authenticity in that in the films of ken loach and and people like mike lee i've done work with mike you know they're the types of films, those sort of ordinary working class stories, they always need to have a voice and a place and a platform. Um, to balance it up, you can have Marvel films, you can have all the rest of it and musicals or whatever it is, but you still need to have those, those working class voices coming through. And I think um, actors, directors, all of us, we need to keep fighting that fight, yeah.
0: I think it's I think I think there's um, there's some real truth in this idea of um of, of working class actors. And I, I guess this is a you know says is... the man who's
2: about to play a robot next, yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
0: And it is, look, it is, like, because I'm from a working-class background up in Leeds, and, you know, it feels like a delicate conversation to have purely because you don't want to be doing that working-class hero stick, which is, like, you don't want to be, like, it's, you know, to go back to Quint again from Jaws, because seemingly that's every reference point, you know, you got city hands, Mr Hooper, you've been counting money all your life. It's, like, you (laughs) you don't want to be that guy. But at the same time, you sort of say, you know, Stephen Graham, Eddie and and, like... Uh, vicky mcclure uh these are yeah. the names that underneath eddie's tweet it was like the same sort of three names kept coming up like those were just the only other three people aside from yourself who people could name who could who yeah. potentially could fit fit into that category of like yeah. of, uh, and you know and so when you're seeing those same names repeated over and over you're like well bloody hell that's all anyone knows that's all. that's yeah
1: the only-
2: I know, I I remember reading a great piece in The Guardian a few years back saying um wh- where is where is the next Gary Oldman? You know what I mean? I mean he was always an actor that an actor now that I greatly admire. But it's it's um it, I tell you what the weird thing is, Alex. It's it's I, I think that I've it's taken me, I've been acting for 20 years, but I, I can there's been a couple of occasions where um say, for example, someone wanted to cast me in, in, a, in an upper class role. And it was mm-hmm. like, I remember the casting director saying, it was, it was a pilot for an AMT show. And um, there was two roles, two brothers separated at birth. One was an Essex boy and one was a, one was a gentrified um, surgeon in 18th century London. And um, it was written by Rowan Jones, this brilliant American guy and he, I obviously went in for the cockney role, didn't I? And he was like, Oh, well, hold on, can't we? Can't we? Danny, Danny's great. Can't we? Can't we? Um, let's test Danny for the for the for the for the other brother." And it was like the the room was like, "Oh no, no, we don't do that. Danny doesn't do that." And he was like, "What do you mean?" And he went, "We don't do that with Danny." And he was like, "What? What? What do you mean?" And it was, in the end, I ended up testing screen testing for both the roles, and I got the uh, the posh one, and the brilliant Tom Hollander. So. Uh, our, our initial class was switched in those two roles. It never got picked up. I've seen it. It was great, but it, it took an American's sensibility to sort of look at that and go, "Hold on, what, why can't we do that? Let, let's just play it outside the box." And sometimes we get so blinkered in this country. Do you know what I mean? And I'm talking to casting directors when I when I'm saying this is that you know try and be as creative and inventive with your choices as possible. Yeah. Because there are kids from poorer backgrounds who have a huge capacity for playing a whole wide breadth of characters. And um, they just need to be given the chance. Do you know what I mean? And it's, um I've had to really fight for that, you know, uh, throughout my career. And I mean, hopefully the, um you know, I'll continue to do so and it won't be
0: so difficult. <laughs> <laughs> and do you think maybe, for you, it is going to be um, a series that is transatlantic, a ser- an American series with American creators. Is that something that you'd like to do in terms of being able to, like you say with that example, perhaps be in a position to explore roles that you wouldn't necessarily be handed here?
2: Yeah, I think so. That's definitely something that hasn't sort of come to fruition yet, the whole big American... Um, series that you know contemporaries of mine friends of mine that have gone over there and really smashed it I, I, I would I'm not going to lie that, that is definitely something I'm really keen on doing it feels like it's something I haven't properly explored and if 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 by doing that it opens up a whole different array of characters for me and and I'm successful with it then that, that would be fantastic you know what I mean but I mean I've always you never want to go over to the States for example and do terrible work you know yeah. what I mean it's 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 I don't want to, um, you know, tarnish the reputation I've got here, but um let's see what happens. That's always the mystique, isn't it? And the beauty of my industry, of our industry, is that you just, you never know, do you? You never know what's around the corner. You never know what opportunity is going to be given to you next.
0: And is it, I mean, from the outside looking in, it feels like the those opportunities are quite uh, high in number just because of, like, uh, the most basic thing of the amount of TV that is being produced now. Like, it it feels... It feels like, you know, with every every film studio now, Netflix, Amazon, you know, there is no end of streaming services. And I, I think we might reach a point where something has to give because I don't think people are going to carry on spending a tenner, like like six six different ways every month to get every streaming service. You're going to have to go, right, which ones do I really watch? But yeah, at the yeah, moment, yeah. there's a huge desire for, for TV. Do you feel like the amount of potential work, not work you'd necessarily take, but the amount of work out there is like higher than it's ever been.
2: Oh, I think it's the highest it's ever been. I mean, I'm about to shoot a Christmas movie, believe it or not in August um, for Amazon. You know what I mean? It's um, literally snow machines and everything. It was kind of magical when I walked out on the set. I was like, wow, it actually really works. Um, But so you get people like Netflix and Amazon that are actually producing their own single films. As well as their, mm. you know, epic sort of long-running series, um, the work, uh, the the breadth of that for actors out there is just kind of tenfold at the moment, and that's a one. I you think know, that's a great thing. The challenging thing is to find the right project that's going to punch through the ceiling because there is so much content. I don't know about you, I I get sort of overwhelmed as to what to watch. I don't quite know. Um, it's You're con- you're committing a huge amount of personal time, aren't you, to watch mm. these shows? Yeah. Um, but it, it's great, it's great. And I, I, what I do worry about is, um, is British independent cinema gonna fall by the wayside because of it? Mm-hmm. Even sort of cinema in general, do you know what I mean? I think it's weird, isn't it, in the lockdown when you're, that sort of pleasure of going to the cinema, that was taken away from us how much um, people are kind of still sort of weary about that or wary about that go, go actually going actually back to the, the pictures because it's, I think that's, that is the purest way of watching film, you know, and I think we have to sort of embrace that still and continue to do so. But it it's there, there feels like there's a shift because what you're saying is there's like all these amazing yeah. directors that are now, you know, yeah. committing to these streaming services.
0: Exactly. acts actors now, you know, i read, I mean, it was slightly tongue-in-cheek, but it was saying that you know, your big your big Hollywood stars, the dream is no longer an Oscar, it's a contract with Marvel. That is the dream. Right, yeah. So, but yeah, it's yeah. it is it is interesting what's happened with cinema. I mean, you know, I guess the only good potentially good way of looking at it is because like You've either got event movies, which you know, these that cost $250 million and like, you know, have to make a billion or whatever to succeed. So that's one end of the spectrum. What's disappeared is the sort of middle of the road, 60 million blockbuster, which were exciting and had money spent on them, but were an original idea. But what still exists is your very low budget films. I mean, a lot of it is horror, but there is, you know, there are still some interesting movies being made that cost so little that, you know, they can make their money back. Yeah. So I yeah. guess there's an argument, but perhaps this this either ends of the spectrum system that we've got going might actually generate some original ideas that cost it so little that they can still, you know, play in a cinema.
2: But the, but the whole thing of a long streaming series on a Netflix or something like that is from an acting point of view, it is incredibly enticing because you are being asked to play a character over a long mm. stretch of time. Uh, and that's kind of every actor's dream, isn't it? Really the sort of opportunity that that gives you, mm. you know, something like a sort of Brian Cranston in Breaking Bad, you know, it's sort of, it's a, just a, a mammoth undertaking, isn't it? Mm. And if it's done well, like that was, it's kind of, it's iconic. Um,
0: talking of uh, movies, um You've had a couple of cameos in some big movies, uh, which I do want to mention. Uh, first of all, 1917, that must have been quite, uh, quite an experience, <laughs> stepping onto that set, if only because, you know, they made those trenches. It was a real set. It was uh, it was a big deal.
2: It, it was a big deal. I mean, I, I if you want to do a steady cam shot in a war film, then you've got to come to me because I've done... <laughs> That epic Steadicam one in Atonement with Joe Wright and they landed (laughs) Dunkirk. So, to be honest with you, when I stepped out on 1917 with Sam Mendes, I was like, yeah, this is part of the course. Been there, done that, got the T-shirt. Where do you want me to stand? (laughs) 1917 was an absolute uh, unforgettable... I was, like, three days. I was only... I had a kind of cough and a spit in it, really. but You start the movie, though.
0: Start the movie. I
2: start the movie... um, but you're right they they literally dug that whole trench system um so just literally to be on that set to see how the mechanics of it worked with the crew how they were moving the camera where it was you know coming off the crane and handheld and it was just extraordinary and then we got into that scene with Colin Firth when he gives them the mission and the camera is still kind of coming in very slowly and then the roof to the thing is lift. It was just next level brilliance. Mm. And um yeah, the great thing about 1917 also was that weirdly we shot it on Salisbury Plain where the trench system was and you couldn't actually turn over if it was raining or if it was sunny. It had to be overcast mm. for no shadows and for continuity. So there was quite a lot of time of us just hanging out. So um
0: I don't imagine you had to audition for that, though. That must have been just a, a phone call going, would you like to play this role? In-? That was
2: just a phone call. And it was, um, it's a great example to all young actors, this, because I, I'd i never met Sam Mendes before. And then the phone call came through, and it was Nina Gold, casting director, and she said, look, everyone's going to do a little cameo, but it's mainly about the two young kids. And, like, Mark Strong's doing it, and Benedict Cumberbatch. And I was like, yeah, of course, Andrew Scott. And you know like, i mean. i mean, um. But I do remember, even it had a very small role, but it was, um, they, I arrived, I mean, come, come and meet Sam, and he was, I went to his trailer, and he was just a, the nicest fella, and he, but he, he explained to me the whole inspiration for the film, we talked about the character, I felt like an important cog in the wheel, do you know what I mean, he really made me feel at home. But he said to me, "Danny, it's it's just great to meet you. I've seen you in that play, in this play, and and that." And I was just like, "Wow, you saw me at the Donmar, you saw me at the National." And I was just like, "I never knew, I never knew he was in the audience." So it was (laughs) just—I always say to young actors, you just never know, you know. Whatever project you're in—a play, a TV, a short film, whatever it is—you just don't know who's going to see it, and something will kind of hopefully transpire from it. So. it was great. And I mean, I have to say the first time I ever sat down and watched that film, it was, I, I just think 1917 is an absolute masterpiece. I thought it was yeah. an amazing movie.
0: Yeah. George, George Mackay is um, is wonderful in it as well. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's an incredible film. And um, it's funny going back and watching Spectre, his uh, second Bond movie again now, and watching that opening, which is basically a rehearsal for 1917. Yeah. It's like... I, I think I've got an idea for a movie a little bit later, but I'm not going to say that here. So it's just one long shot at the start of yeah. uh, Spectre. But yeah, it's great. The,
2: the similarities between Atonement and 1917 was like, don't forget your lines, hit your mark when the camera comes to you, do your thing and move on. It's, it's got it's quite pressurized because yeah. if you if you screw up, you've got to reset the whole thing because it's obviously it's one take. Mm. It's um. It's quite scary, yeah.
0: <laughs> I bet, I bet, um, and and uh, also, um, it, it would be remiss of me not to mention uh, Rogue One. You had a camera, you like, got got little rollers Tivik in Rogue One. That's yes, a little a very fun scene.
2: It, and Alex, again, that was um, it was just a phone call, but I I was part of the reshoots. I think they did a the couple of weeks reshoots, and I I um. When the Force Awakens came out, um, Milo and I, I, we I said okay because he was really getting into Star Wars, and we watched all of the films in order in preparation for the Force Awakens, and then um, that was fantastic. And and uh, I then get this offer out the blue to be in, in, in Rogue One, and I had to, and I was on holiday, and then um, I had to have a Zoom chat thing with the director and, and and the first thing he said is okay Danny you, you're not allowed to tell anyone about this film and I went no 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 of course I've okay. got he went no no you're not allowed to tell anyone you know what I mean I was like wow this whole secrecy thing was like paramount and I was like okay like and um I couldn't help myself I had to tell my son <laughs> I think he was on like a sort of uh <laughs> and he wasn't, and I, and I said, do you want to know what Daddy's next role is? And he was like, yeah, yeah, whatever, whatever. He went, it's Star Wars. And he just went, oh, no way, no way. And um, and to be fair to Milo, he was brilliant. He kept it a secret. And, um, but I mean, look, Alex, it's sort of surreal. You step out on, on Pinewood lot and there's like, you're in a scene with stormtroopers. Do you know what I mean? It was hilarious because they were just sitting around having coffee and you're like, that's, that's, that's kind of weird isn't it yeah but it was an amazing set you know like a street scene and it was it was it was great to be up close with all the kind of animatronics and all the props and just the, the scale of of uh model making and what they did with it was just incredible yeah but i mean i, I, I look i i left that day thinking uh i may be in it i may not i, I do you know what i mean it was like i could have been ended up on the cutting room floor so thankfully i made it and it, to be fair it was a really it was a cracking scene there was a lot of exposition um so in a way it was kind of integral to the story at the beginning and mm. indeed he is the first character isn't he to get blown away and then it yeah. it progresses all the way through the film i have to say i think rogue one is for my money the best of those standalone movies i love how dark it is it was yeah. uh, it was fantastic
0: yeah it's it's great and i i you sort of knowing that it was part of the reshoots you sort of go well that's interesting that they they wanted to give you a better idea of diogo luna's character early on the fact that you know he will kill to uh, protect his you know identity and his mission and everything so that's that is yeah. interesting
2: But I remember Tony Gilroy, the director guy, because I remember going because I I, I went to I'll get killed again. He went. I said I get killed in everything. I've been I've been shot, stabbed, blown up, poisoned. And he went, Hey man, they'll do a prequel. You know, you come back, and I was like, Yeah, yeah. And they are doing a prequel of Diego Luna's character. Have I had the cold, Alex? (laughs) Have I fuck? And I was like, I can't believe it. I'm going to be back. Anyway, maybe the phone will ring in a couple of hours. I don't know. But, um, yeah, it'd be great to see that series, that standalone thing as well. Yeah.
0: yeah. Hey, uh, Danny, it's been a pleasure speaking to you, mate. Really lovely to chat to you this morning. And
2: you, Alex, yeah. Well, I hopefully I'll bump into you with the dogs someday Absol- soon.
0: Yeah, I'll be able to pay closer attention to our conversation this time because he's he's older now so he's not doing that thing at that point when I met you Simon found it hilarious to specifically steal food from children's hands uh, which is <laughs> okay. it's just one of those conversations that you just don't expect to have ever in your life I'm, I'm sorry this animal that I am in, in ownership of has made your child cry can I buy it? Can, <laughs> yeah. I, can I buy an ice cream yeah one of the few times you can offer a stranger's child an ice cream and it not be weird. Can I buy the, your child an ice cream? Because the dog stole it, yeah. Um, oh, dear. Have you got, an, you got a busy day coming up? or are you, uh... We've got the actual press
2: launch tonight of Code 404. So oh, well. I'm off out uh, to uh, Soho. We're going to screen the first two Eps. And we're actually doing a pub quiz with all the journalists beforehand. So it's me, my team and Anna Maxwell-Martin's the captain of the other team. So I think they're just celebrating that everyone's coming out of lockdown. So that'll be fun. And we'll show the first steps and have a couple of drinks and hopefully uh, bribe them into giving us five-star reviews. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Let's pull back that curtain. That's what it's really about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Oh, well, listen, good luck with it. Like I said, big fan of the first season. Uh, So uh, really looking forward to seeing this one. And, um, And you have a lovely day, mate. Lovely to speak to you. Thank
2: you, Alex. All the best, mate. Great chatting with you.
0: Thanks, Danny.
2: Cheers, buddy. All the best.
0: Hello, Alex Zane here. Thank you for choosing to listen to Just The Facts. And while you can still enjoy these episodes forever, you might want to check out our brand new show, A trip to the movies, where each week a different famous film fan curates their perfect night out at the cinema, picking what snacks they'd eat, where they'd sit, who they'd go with, and of course, what movies they'd screen. If you love cinema as much as we do, search A Trip to the Movies with Alex Zane, or head to our socials at TripToMoviesPod. That's at TripToMoviesPod to find out more.